Hi listeners, this is Sarah. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Montague Reporter Podcast. I'm excited about this one because it's a deep dive into Massachusetts state politics, and it's a discussion with Alex Davidson Carroll and Matt Barron. We're talking about proposals to increase public access and transparency in the Massachusetts State House. So give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Alex, who are you? Could you introduce yourself? My name's Alex. I'm 17 and I live in Montague Center. I'm a student at Greenfield Community College, currently taking online classes there. And that's how I spend most of my day-to-day time. And otherwise, um, I also do a lot of activism, specifically climate activism. And that's one main reason that I got into doing work around transparency as well. Thanks. And Matt, who are you? Hi, Matt Barron. I live in Chesterfield in Hampshire County, which is part of the first Franklin district of which Montague is one of the 19 communities. And I'm a political consultant and rural strategist. The two of you were interested in joining the podcast today to follow up on a letter to the editor that was published in the January 28th, 2021 edition of the newspaper, the Montague Reporter newspaper. Alex, could you give a summary of the letter? Sure. So the letter was coming about at a time where there was an upcoming rules vote for the House of Representatives that happened in February of this year. But so I was writing to ask constituents to support three main amendments and to pressure representatives to support three main transparency amendments. And those were to change the number of people required for a roll call vote. Normally at 16, we wanted to change it to eight to make all votes in public committees in the state house public. And the Senate already does that, the house does not. And also to have those votes on the website in an easily accessible format. The third, well, the third has changed since this campaign, but um, it's now a new amendment Yeah, Matt, I don't know. Do you want to go into that at all? Sure. I think we should tell listeners sort of the uh, 30,000-foot view of this issue, Mm -hmm. which is that Massachusetts scores very poorly on measures of transparency, accessibility relative to our state's legislative data. In 2013, the Open State Legislative Data Report Card gave us an F, putting us at the very bottom along with Alabama, Kentucky, and Nebraska the least open state legislatures. And two years later, in 2015, the Center for Public Integrity gave Massachusetts an overall grade of D plus with an F for public Mm -hmm. access to information. And so we really have this sort of secret government on Boston and Beacon Hill. And it's very frustrating to uh, constituents and voters like Alex and myself in trying to penetrate the veil of secrecy and actually find out what our elected representatives are doing. So last fall, uh, on the November 2020 ballot, there was a non-binding ballot question, which is like a sense of the people, uh, that asked, do the residents of the first Franklin district, of which Montague, as I said, is one of the 19 communities, support more transparency? And it passed overwhelmingly in Montague. The vote was 3,752 yes to 584 no. 
So it passed with over 86% of the vote being in the affirmative. And this was sort of a instruction to our state representative, Natalie Blay from Sunderland, um, to say, you know, when the new legislative session begins, we want you to pay attention to this voter mandate and act accordingly to support, you know, the amendments that Alex just described and other amendments for uh, opening up the legislature. That's what this campaign is all about. What right. has been State Rep Natalie Blay's reaction to that? She seems to be very defensive about it. She told some of us that we were wrong in not letting her know beforehand that this ballot question was going to appear in her district, which is, I think, totally off the mark because we have what's called the right of free petition in Massachusetts, meaning people can secure questions on the ballot at the statewide level or at a district level if they get the required number of of signatures. Some ballot questions are binding, meaning they carry the force of law. Others are non-binding there, as I say, sense of the people. So this was basically the voters in her district, you know, saying, we feel strongly about this and we want to instruct you as to our sentiments. We also, there was a, a rather large meeting of constituents from across her towns in December, December 11th, 2020, where we engaged with her on these rules reforms and asked her to support them. And again, she got very defensive and started giving a lot of excuses as to why she, you know, was undecided. And at one point she said she wanted to hear from a lot more people, which I thought was both insulting and comical at the same time, because, you know, we just had this question, which it received 21,424 yes votes, to only 2,750 votes. And yet she wasn't satisfied. She wanted to hear from more. Well, at that point, we circulated a petition and got, I think, over 300 people, many of them yeah, close to you know, new people. Close to 400, right? Why do you think Representative Blade is non-committal on this? Well, because the legislature is a very hierarchical institution, the House especially. Uh, there's 160 members, and the Speaker is, out of all the state legislatures in the country, probably one of the most powerful speakers. Um when I say powerful, I would say sort of autocratic and dictatorial. Um, and the speaker has the ability to recommend which members get assigned to what committees, whether they get a parking space that is in the state house or across the street in a garage in a state office building, mean, right. meaning they have to get wet if they you know, don't get the space under the state house, whether they get more than one legislative aid, extra staff whether they get a nice office overlooking the Boston Common or whether they get an office in the sub-basement of the state house with no heat and piles of mouse turds. I mean, it, this power that is exerted by the speaker over the rank and file is, is quite a bit. And so there's tremendous pressure to do what you're told and toe the line. And I would really respect that play more if she just leveled with us and said, hey, everybody, you know, I hear what you're saying and I support you, but here's the reality. Here's my reality, you know, and instead of sort of couching her opposition in 
all of this legislating and, and, you know, excuse making. Um, Alex, I was wondering whether you could talk about how this push for more transparency in the Massachusetts State House mm-hmm. intersects with some of your other activism. I do a lot of climate activism, and um, that's what brought me here. And so I've worked on the 100% Renewable Act in Mass, um, the S9 bill, which recently passed, actually, um, and that was exciting, um, carbon pricing bills. And so I started to notice a trend after doing this for a few years of nothing happening. And specifically, there would be a pattern of things coming into committees, normally the Telecommunications Utilities and Energy Committee for most climate legislation, and then sitting there for a long time, having a public hearing somewhat last minute. Normally, it would be put on the website with not much notice, and then the meeting happens, you don't hear anything for a long time, and then the bill ends up dying in committee. It doesn't make it out of committee. That means that activists then have to try to pass amendments to, um, for instance, a budget to try to get their bills in another way, to try to pass that legislation differently. And that's very common, not just for climate legislation, but for many pieces of progressive legislation, especially with wide-scale support. And so it started to hit me that there were several bills I was supporting that it seemed like the majority of people in mass supported that the majority of representatives co-sponsored and then sat in committee and weren't passed for multiple years in a row, multiple sessions. And so transparency for me, I mean, apart from the fact that in any functional democracy, you need transparency is that it will help with all of these other issues. It will help with climate justice and climate change, especially. And so in working on these transparency reforms, my hope is that then it will be easier to pass legislation and easier for activists and advocates to know what's going on at every step of the legislative process. What are some arguments against the transparency measures and what's your response to them? So one of the responses that Rep. Lay told me in 2019 when she first got elected, and this was an amendment allowing for more time to review the legislation. And she said, you quote, worry about further delay in the legislative process. And she's also said that the Republicans, which are a tiny minority, like 32 or 33 Republicans, there's 120 something Democrats. Democrats have a super majority in the legislature, meaning they can do anything they want at any time. They can override a governor's veto anytime. But she was trying to say that, you know, if we give more time for bills to be in print and public notice to, you know, read them and digest them, that this will delay the legislative process. And I said to her that, you know, the data shows that the legislative process is being slowed by a dramatic fall off in the number of full formal sessions and a huge drop in the number of record, recorded roll call votes, not by giving legislators and your constituents an extra half hour of time to review amendments. And I said that since the mid 1980s, the amount of time 
the House had spent in session and the number of issues decided through roll calls have plunged. And this is data from the Boston Globe. In 1985-86, House members were in session for a total of 1,030 hours, or about 10 hours per week, and conducted 1,655 roll calls. By 2009-2010, the House was meeting on average only five hours a week, and the number of roll calls had declined 70% to just 513 for that two-year session. In the 2017-2018 House session, the one before Rep. Blade became a member. The House only took 485 roll calls. And these shifts have occurred while the salary for legislators has increased over the years. Mm-hmm. Alex, did you have anything to add? Yeah, on the 72-hour amendment, so this was the third amendment in the Act on Mass Campaign that would require a reasonable amount of time, 72 hours, to actually read a bill before you're voting on it. That's to help advocates and legislators alike. But oftentimes I Mm -hmm. hear that legislators worry, and I've heard this from multiple legislators, that uh, certain bills wouldn't get passed because they're often down to the wire at the end of a session. And if they had to have 72 hours, they wouldn't have time in that session to vote on a bill before the session ended. And I really feel that is a solvable issue. And really, that comes down to a culture of sort of procrastination or putting things off till the last minute, and then having to vote on all of these bills. And we don't need to do that. So I don't find that argument very convincing. Another argument I often hear, this is with public committee votes. Legislators will say that committee votes are already made public and already easily accessible. And that's not actually true. It is true in the Senate in mass. You can go on the website, you can look at how legislators voted on specific bills that were in committee, but currently the House doesn't do that. So again, there's kind of a a bit of legislating going on there where legislators are trying to make you doubt your strategy or kind of confuse you with rules. But the reality is that currently all committee votes are not easily accessible. And especially to people who live farther away from the state house, we need this information to be accessible in order to participate in our democracy. One of the excuses is that it would take so much staff time to you know, prepare these committee votes which is another red herring. And there's a group of Black, Latino, people of color, legislative aides who said, don't put that excuse on us. Like, we want to work on providing this information. I mean, I worked as a legislative assistant in the late 80s and early 90s for three state representatives from the southeastern part of the state, Cape Cod. It was a much different time then. Uh, we didn't have, we had much more open government because we had a rules revolt in 1985 that brought in a new speaker who small d democratized the institution and then in 96 it started going back the other way but alex is right it's this procrastination palace mentality which is really by design because if you give people rank and file legislators less time then they can't be as participatory they just have to kind of fall in line with the exactly 
Exactly. A good yeah. example was the climate change bill that um, was passed uh, a day before the session ended. So January 4th of this year and the session for 2019-2020 ended January 5th. Governor Baker vetoed the bill. By passing that so late, they left themselves no room to override his veto because when the clock struck midnight, the 2021-2022 legislative session began. So they had to go back from square one and enact it all over again, which they did in pretty short order. But they have plenty of time to get their work done if they want to. That's sort of another argument you'll hear from reps. And as Matt was saying, it's often um, very well disguised, very well sort of hidden, where a rep will say something like, you know, I have to keep in mind how I can uh, deliver on on things for my district, for example. And really what they're thinking about is like, how can I protect my relationships with leadership in order to be able to bring these things into my district? But as Matt was saying, that is not normally said so clearly because quite frankly, it doesn't sound very good. It's interesting. It, this this seems to be an issue of like the concentration of power in the hands of House leadership. Is that is that an accurate take? Yes. Yes. I mean, the last rules reform fight happened in 1984-85. In the late 70s, early 80s, you had an autocratic speaker, Tom Thomas McGee of Lynn. Uh, a former Marine, a cigar chomping, you know, sort of taskmaster. And, um, you know, it was like a boil on your foot. It just built up and built up and it needed to be lanced. And people were just chafing under this, you know, autocratic rule. And so in 1984, when the legislative elections were held, the issue of rules reform was a dominant issue. It's like a process issue because it's an issue that affects all the other issues. And there was a big turnover where rules reformers defeated sort of McGee loyalists. And in 1985, they had enough votes to elect a new speaker and majority leader who ran on this promise of promise of a more democratic house. And so that was George Kubarian of Everett and Charlie Flaherty of Cambridge. And they, you know, allowed the committee chairs to have like more autonomy over running their committees, to not rule with white knuckles, but to actually engage the committee members more collegially and colloquially. And, you know, the budget, which is the most important thing that's done all year, was done in open session. Uh, if it took a week, if it took two weeks, however long it took, everyone could, you know, file their amendments, speak on their amendments, get a roll call on their amendments. That all began to change when Tom Finneran became speaker. He introduced this thing called consolidated amendments, which is what we have today, where instead of doing all the budget in the House chamber in view of the press and the public, they will go into a room off the House lobby, room 348, where the press and the public cannot go. And they it's like a star chamber. The Ways and Means Committee chair and his staff will sit like a, you know, Arabian bazaar and they'll say all of the amendments dealing with higher education, whoever's interested, you know, go in and make your case. And the 
reps go in and they say, you know, I want a new like athletic track for Salem State College, you know, and they argue and decide out of public view what to do. And then they come back in and the presiding officer says, okay, the question comes on adoption of the consolidated amendments for higher education. I'll oppose, I oppose, no, the ayes have it, the amendment is adopted. Then the the media and the public have to, like peeling back the layers of an onion after the budget was passed, say, wow, what's in higher ed? Like, did Bristol Community College get a new science building? Who, who, which, was it a rep from Fall River down in, you know, where BCC is located that sponsored that? It's like very opaque. And they love it. They say, oh, no, see, it speeds the process along. <laughs> like, yeah, but if the if your constituents can't follow along and, you know, when you're watching on streaming or on public TV on channel 44 and you see them like say the house is in recess because they've all gone into room 348. I mean, that's not open government. I'm sorry. So what comes next with the transparency measures? What's, what are the next steps? Well, Speaker Mariano has said that he is going to bring, well, he appointed a committee to look and make recommendations for rules changes that's going to come back in July um, because the legislature's in session till mid-November because we're in the odd year of the session. In the even year next year, they'll end the session on July 31st. So they have a lot of time. And so in July, they're going to revisit recommendations for rules um and these three amendments you know limiting the speaker's term 72 hours for having access to bills and amendments and uh, mandating all committee votes be made public will be will be debated and roll called i will probably not have to go too far out on a limb uh and say that they the reformers won't have the votes this july to to do that uh, if they can get closer than than two years ago, then they'll probably be happy. I think this is a long game. Mm. Um, I think the folks that want this kind of change are going to have to look at the 2022 legislative elections and look at how people voted this year on these issues and say, if we're not happy with you, maybe we should consider replacing you in a primary. I mean, they're not these seats aren't guaranteed. You know, you serve at the pleasure of your constituents. Mm -hmm. So we have to weigh everything. And um, I would expect more democratic challenges to incumbents who are not um, pro-rules reform votes right now. Right. And I think um, Matt mentioned it. We didn't go into this, but the newest amendment that we're hoping for is to reinstate term limits for um, the speaker to try to prevent that consolidation of power. And something really interesting is that we actually had term limits um, until 2015, I believe. And then um, the speaker, uh, DeLeo, under his leadership, they were removed. Really, I think a, a main goal is that consolidation of power, because while we need committee votes to be public um, and ha to have 72 hours. I think even with those two amendments, um, we will still have many transparency issues. So they're not the be all end all. 
and I think um, term limits on the speaker are a good idea to try to prevent some consolidation of power and overall to create a more transparent government. Yeah, ordinarily, I'm dead set against term limits as a rule because I think we have term limits. They're called elections. To me, having arbitrary term limits enhances the power of lobbyists and staff because if you say to a legislator, you can only serve you know, three terms or six terms and then they're out, you wipe away institutional memory Whereas the people that are there, you know, session after session, the lobbyists and the, and the staff are, 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 you know, more empowered. But in the case of the speaker, I absolutely agree that there should be limits just to have new blood, you know, fresh turnover. As Alex said, we had term limits in 2009. And then in 2015, Secret DeLeo said, you know what? I really like this job. I really like this power. I don't want to give it up. So, I'm going to have you all, the members, vote on <laughs> a amendment to the rules that wipes away the term limits, which they dutifully did. <laughs> and Speaker DeLeo announced his retirement last year, I believe, right? Right. He stepped down in December. Yeah, um, just at the end of the session. And that. Mm -hmm. Is there a problem with corruption in the Massachusetts State House? There certainly is a large impact from lobbyists and corporate interests. And one great example, there was recently a study from Brown University looking at barriers to climate legislation in Massachusetts, and it outlined 12 barriers. Interestingly enough, one of them was state house transparency and rules um, in the state house, such as the ones that um, we're hoping to change. And Another one was, or several, highlighted um, the roles of corporate lobbyists, and they counted testimonies and committees and conducted analyses of those. And it's, there's quite a large impact in terms of climate legislation. Uh, that's only one issue, but I'm sure that it extends in other places as well. Um, and that's sort of a reality we have to live with, but there's things that we can do as well to decrease that. Well, Alex Davidson, Carol, and Matt Barron, thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.